Well, it is uh, good to be back with you again to bring God's Word to you and to bring His sacrament to you as well. You know, those of you who who know me, and as I look around, uh, that's most of you, you know how much I, I love the Old Testament. You know, I just, I simply love seeing Christ and the gospel portrayed in Old Testament texts. And, and so this morning, we're going to take a look at a wonderful Old Testament text from, from one of the minor prophets. Now, what about these, these books that we, we call the, the minor prophets? You know, perhaps a better name for the last 12 books of the Old Testament uh, would be the shorter prophets, rather than the minor prophets. You know, these books got their name not because they're, they're less important than the so-called major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but simply because they're shorter in length than those books. So, so they're minor in terms of length, not in terms of relevance and certainly not in terms of importance. In fact, these short books are very powerful works. They speak to our present sins, and they call for present action on our part. The church absolutely needs to go back and revisit these books. You know, I think these books uh, also dramatize the character of God, as few other books do. And I think they emphasize basically three basic attributes of God. First, they literally breathe God's sovereignty. You know, nothing is more central to the thinking of these 12 writers than the fact that God is the sovereign God of history. And nothing, absolutely nothing happens either to Israel or to other nations that is not the result of his direct determination. I think a second great attribute of God seen in the minor prophets is holiness. You know, an awareness of God's holiness was the driving force behind their sharp denunciation of sin. You know, it made no difference to them where they found the sin, whether it was in foreign nations or or whether it was among God's people. It was still an offense to God, and they preached against it. And third, I think the prophets uh, speak of God's love. I think some people uh, think that God's love is incompatible with His justice, that's not true. It's actually, it's because of God's great love for his people that he sends prophets with, with the message of judgment. And eventually he even sends judgment itself. You know, God knows that sin is an outrage against himself, against other people, and even against the one who is doing it. So he judges sin in the case of his own people in order to turn them back from sin to himself. And the reason this morning I press all this to you is, you know, don't we need these same emphases today? You know, we we need them as individuals because you and I sin. We run away from God, just like Israel did. We certainly need them as a nation also because God will not judge America or any other nation today, any different in regard to its sin than he dealt with the nations of the past. You know, I think these minor prophets teach us very clearly 
that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And we need to hear that today, don't we? As we look around and we see what's happening in our culture and in our nation and in our government, we need the spiritual insights offered up by these remarkable men of the Old Testament. So my my text this morning is taken from one of those minor prophets. It's taken from the book of Joel. So if you would have your Bibles, if you would open them. Our text is Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. It's a familiar passage. I know most of you have heard it, but hear it again this morning. This is God's Word. It's inspired. And so let's give it our attention. Joel chapter 2, beginning with verse 38 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Please pray with me as we ask God to bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Blessed you are, Lord, great God. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed you are, word of the Father, who has spoken to every generation. We ask that you would pour out on us now your blessed spirit that we too might know the heritage of the holy ones, the witness of the people of God, and the tradition of the apostles. Pour out on us now that ancient presence, the glory from of old the promise of the future, the seal of your coming. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, you know, we don't know very much about Joel or the circumstances of his the writing of his book. Except we do know one thing. We, we knew, do know that there was an invasion of locusts that had swept through Judah, terrifying the people. Now, the word Joel means Jehovah is God. And the first verse of chapter 1 tells us that he's the son of Pethuel. Now, aside from that bare fact, nothing else is known about either Joel or his father. Now, all we can assume is that Joel lived in Jerusalem, and he appeared there as a prophet of God on the occasion of this devastating locust invasion of Judah. Now, we're not sure when this incident took place. But I think the important point is that Joel describes in in terrible detail the incredible devastation of Judah by these swarms of, of insects. They literally stripped the land of all vegetation, which in turn caused a famine. And both humans and animals, they suffered terribly from the lack of food, the lack of water. 
But as you get further into the book, we discover that this locust invasion is merely a foretaste of the coming day of God's judgment. And it's sent in advance of that day as a warning to the people that it's coming. Now, Joel refers to this judgment in chapter 2 as the day of the Lord. And this term designates a future period of, of catastrophic judgment. That's going to be a day when God will break his silence and intervene in history to judge Israel and the Gentile nations for their sin. Now, the disasters of this life, I don't care, locust invasions, plagues, famines, wars, natural catastrophes, personal catastrophes, those are little judgments compared to this coming day of the Lord. But Joel does tell us that there are warnings There are red flags to us of the wrath of God, which is to be revealed at some future time. And this points, I think, to the specific purpose of Joel writing this short little book. His goal is to lead people to repentance, to turn back from their sin, to escape this this coming day of the Lord. And as Joel speaks of repentance, his emphasis is on the heart. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, that the people of God are to rend their hearts, not just their garments. That is, he wants a true internal repentance, not just simply an external one. You see, God wants us to be heartbroken over sin. And Joel tells us very clearly that if we will return to God with all our heart, that he will hear from heaven, he will turn back his anger, He will restore us, and he will heal heal our land. And dear ones, this land needs to be healed. And that brings us to today's text. It's, It's a text which tells us clearly what happens when people turn from their sin, when they repent and call upon the name of the Lord. You know, there are marvelous promises for the people of God contained in these verses before us. And so pray that the Holy Spirit would open them up to our eyes and to our hearts. You know, many Old Testament prophecies are interpreted for us by the New Testament, and this is certainly the case of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. As most of you know, these verses are interpreted for us by the Apostle Peter. He applies them in the New Testament in Acts 2 to the events which took place at Pentecost. You recall that after Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles waited in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Jesus told them to do that. Now, on Pentecost, one of the three chief Jewish festivals, the apostles were all gathered together, if you recall the story, when suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now when the people of Jerusalem, if you recall, heard this sound, they asked what was happening. 
And Peter, he went out and he preached an impromptu sermon to them. This was the first sermon of the Christian church. And it's recorded for us in Acts 2. You remember what he said. Briefly, he denied that the disciples were drunk, which is what some of the people were saying. And instead, it interpreted the event as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And he quotes these uh, five verses that we've just read this morning in that sermon about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So you see, if we are to understand what Joel 2, verses 28 through 32 means, we have to ultimately view it in light of how Peter interprets it in Acts 2. But I want to pause for a moment, and I want us to dig just a little bit deeper. See, Acts 2 is certainly the fulfillment of this prophecy. But I think to find the roots of this promise in Joel, we have to go back even further in the Old Testament to a story about Moses in Numbers chapter 11, specifically verse 29. Now, you can turn there if you like, or you can just listen as I relate the story. If you are familiar with the story, you remember it was a bad time for Moses. The people had been complaining about their diet of manna. Moses was tired. He was, he was fed up with leading these whining, frustrating, whimpering people. Well, God sympathized with him. And he told him, if you recall, to select 70 of the elders of Israel and bring them with him to the tent of meeting. In verse 17 of Numbers 11, God promised Moses, he said, I will come down and I'll talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they will hear the, and they will bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And that's exactly what happened. These 70 elders received the Holy Spirit. And they began to prophesy. It was a sign to the people that they had received this gift of the Spirit. And they were therefore chosen by God to minister alongside Moses. Now, if you remember the story, you'll know that two of those elders were not with the others at the tent of meeting. But the Spirit of God also came on them. And they also began to prophesy. Now, that bothered some of those who were closest to Moses. And one young man ran up to Moses and he said, Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. That's very interesting. It's Moses' reply to Joshua in verse 29 of Numbers 11, which we're interested in here. Because I think it's the root of the promise found over in Joel. Moses, maybe I'm reading into it, but I think he somewhat longingly and somewhat wistfully, he answered Joshua. And he said, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now that's important. And I labor this point because I think this incident shows that in this early period of Old Testament history, God's spirit was not given to all his people in the way he is now. Now, God was certainly with his people, but his spirit didn't come on them or dwell in them. Instead, he came on certain individuals at certain times for specific purposes. For example, the spirit came on Joseph, allowed Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream. The spirit came on the craftsman who helped build the tabernacle. He came on Joshua helped him conquer the promised land. He came on the prophets. He came on the judges. Yet, and here's my point. In the Old Testament period, the Holy Spirit was not the common gift of God to all his people. So when when Moses said, I wish that all of God's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, I think he was expressing a very real need He was expressing a very real longing. He desperately wanted that to happen. But you see, it wasn't until many years later, when God had spoken to the people through Joel, that there was even the hint of a promise of such a universal blessing. And it wasn't until Pentecost that Joel's promise was fulfilled and the Spirit of God came upon all of God's people. I think that is absolutely stunning. It's marvelous. Now, this promise started way back with Moses in Numbers 11. (laughs) It goes through Joel, and it ends up with Peter in the New Testament book of Acts. Incredible. Note carefully in the text that Joel's emphasis is on the universal nature of this gift. He tells us in verse 28, back in Joel now, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all those people who repent and turn to God, and not just for some people, as it had been previously. Unless we miss the point, Joel spells it out for us in detail. He says, this blessing will be for the young, your sons and your daughters. It will be for the old, your old men. It will be for the strength of the nation, your young men. It will be for both male and female servants. And I I want you to just pause here to really take in this momentous promise that Joel gives us here. Now, this is really a way of saying that in the church age, the age that you and I are currently living in, which the coming of the Holy Spirit inaugurated at Pentecost, all of God's people, all of us, you and me, would be ministers of God, not just a special group of workers like in the Old Testament. Now, of course, there's going to be different tasks to do, different gifts given to enable God's people to do that. No, as Joel puts it, some are going to prophesy Some will dream dreams, some others will see visions, men and women, young and old, slaves and free men. They're not going to all be doing the same work. But all will have some work to do. 
and all will be indwelt by God's Spirit so that the work can be done effectively. That's a great promise, isn't it? But it's also a solemn duty. You know, in the Reformation, this was called the priesthood of all believers. And I think one thing that it did, did a lot of things, but one thing that it did, it reestablished the proper relationship between clergy and lay people. You know, before the Reformation, there had developed in the church this, this false division between clergy and laity in which the clergy were supposed to lead, they were supposed to do all the work of Christian ministry, the people were simply to follow along, give money to support the clergy work. But that isn't what the church is to be. And where that view prevails today, and it does, the church is weak, ineffective. Her ministry suffers. You know, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, describes how it should be. Those verses point out that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are to equip the saints. For what? For the work of ministry. You know, church leaders are to assist lay people. They're to train them to be what they should be and do the work of ministry, which is to proclaim the gospel to the world. You see, with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost which ushered in the church age. All believers now are called to the work of ministry. Believers came together in a new way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the sacraments and to prayer. They begin to witness to others about the Lord Jesus. Sons and daughters began to prophesy. Old men dreamed dreams. Young men saw visions. And a new era was inaugurated. And dear ones, that era is still with us today. And all of us, all of God's people should be involved in proclaiming Him to the world. All of us should be active witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I said, Peter selected this passage from Joel to be used at Pentecost to reflect the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all those who would, who would repent and turn to God. This passage reflected that something special had happened in the course of God's dealing with His people, that a wondrous time had now come, which had been foretold so long ago by this prophet Joel. Then, if you recall, Peter, as he concluded his memorable sermon that day, he told the people, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, quoting Joel. Joel puts it this way. Joel says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. I'd like for you to notice 
several things about those last couple of verses in Joel. Notice first that even in the worst of times that can ever happen, now, even at that terrible time when our Lord comes to judge those people who reject him, even at that time, there is still salvation for men. Now, when day turns to night, when the hope of, of man has fled, there still remains in God, in the person of his dear son, deliverance to all those who will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. In the future, certainly we can predict dark and terrible things. Yet this light of hope will always shine during terrible times. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Second, note that this proclamation is for now. Peter tells us that the time spoken of by the prophet Joel began at Pentecost. You know, when the, when the rushing wind was heard and the flames came down upon the disciples' head, this was when the Holy Spirit came down to earth, and he has never returned to heaven. He's still here, right in the midst of the church. He still works moral and spiritual miracles in our midst, even to this day. Today, that promise still stands. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The day of God's grace is never, ever passed to any soul who lives as long as he's willing to believe in Jesus. You know, the proverb says there's no time like the present. I think it's true. You know, the present moment is the only moment that you have. And the Lord says to you right now, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Third, take a look at that word everyone or whoever. I don't know what your translation says. Everyone or whoever. Dear ones, there are no boundaries, no fences, no restrictions, absolutely no limitations in that word. Young men and women, old men and women, everyone, whoever, applies to you. Good and bad, honorable or dishonorable, whoever speaks to all of you with equal truth. Both rich and poor can find room in whoever. Whoever speaks to you who are here today. And I would just caution you not to shut the door in your face. This is the text. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want to encourage you to believe that, to obey that. It's a gracious gift. Take it, and you will be rich forever. Fourth, note what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. I think it means foremost to believe in God as he reveals himself in Scripture. You know, if you construct your own God in your own imagination, you have absolutely no promise that he will save you. That God is absolutely good for nothing. No, you aren't merely to believe in a God, but in the living and true God of Scripture, 
in Jehovah, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, in the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you accept him as being what he states himself to be in Scripture, this text says you will be saved. I think to call on the name of the Lord also means to pray. I think that's the most obvious sense of this language. You know, we're brought to the Lord by prayer, which sincerely asks God to save us solely as a gift of His grace. You know, to pray to God doesn't require a PhD. You don't need a priest, except that great high priest who intercedes for us when we call. And I think to call on the name of the Lord also means to confess that name. You know, as early as the book of Genesis, we read, Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They didn't pray first, but they began to meet together to worship Jehovah. They came out from among other men. And they named the sacred name as that of their God and Lord, declaring that regardless of what other people did or said, they would serve Him. I think the Lord requires everyone who is saved to come out from among other men and confess the name of Christ. There's no such thing as a, as a closet Christian. You know, you've all heard the trite saying, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would the prosecutor have enough evidence to convict you? You must, in some way or another, by what you say, or by what you do, confess your faith. And the promise is that whoever trusts, prays, and avows himself to be on the Lord's side will not perish, but will be saved. And fifth, note the use of this word will or shall. I don't know what your translation says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, in that word, there are absolutely no contingencies. There are no provisions. This text is not a bare hope. This text is a solemn assertion. If you believe, even if you're the chief of sinners, you will, not might, you will be saved. And I hope you see the absolute assurance of that. You know, God who cannot lie, puts his name, his reputation, his character on the line. He pledges his word to you. And dear ones, that is something that you can absolutely risk your soul on. Believe it. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's a great, great promise. And you probably think with me that everybody would call upon the name of the Lord. But read the text carefully. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Notice there that only some will escape God's judgment. Only some will survive. Only a remnant will believe. And even that remnant will not call upon the name of the Lord until first God changes their heart and calls them by His grace. You know, after, it's amazing, after all the preaching, all the invitations, 
and the limitless breadth of this promise, yet all that are saved are contained among the survivors whom the Lord calls. In our text this morning is a genuine and generous invitation. It opens wide the door. And yet, there are some who refuse to walk through it. You know, I've said this before. I'm always dumbfounded that so many people hurry to be lost. They're eager to be destroyed. They rush madly off the cliff to their death on the rocks below. Amazes me. They covet their own delusions. They choose their own damnation because they simply are not willing to back away from their sin. They will not seek that which alone is their life, their joy, their salvation. They prefer hell to heaven, sin to holiness. And Jesus Christ cries out to these people, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are what testify of me. But you will not come to me that you might have life. There are those who will do anything rather than come to Jesus. They stop short of calling upon his name. Don't let that be so with you. You know, I know most of you here today... I'm pretty sure that most of you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are, then I exhort you to intercede for those who are not. Oh, that you who are not saved this morning would be moved to call upon the name of the Lord. Before you leave this place this morning, I would exhort you to go to God and say, God, as the, as the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I need to be saved. I call upon your name. I cast myself completely upon your mercy. I trust in the blood and righteousness of your dear Son. In faith, I lay hold of this promise in your word from the prophet Joel, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered from their sin and be saved. Now's the time. Now is the moment. Don't wait until tomorrow because tomorrow may never come. Lord, I pray that you would make it so in every heart this morning. Amen and amen.